Last Sunday we began to examine John chapter 12, and we focused on verses 1 through 8, which describe a dinner party held in honor of Jesus. The party occurred six days before Passover at Simon the leper's house in Bethany. Jesus' friends Martha, Mary, and Lazarus were in attendance, and each of them served Jesus in a different way. Martha served Jesus by preparing and serving the meal. Uh, Mary lovingly sacrificed to Jesus when she anointed him with expensive perfume, washed his feet, and dried his feet with her hair instead of a towel. And this morning, we're going to look at how Lazarus served Jesus during the party. Please take your Bibles and turn to John 12. Our focus today will be on verses 9 through 11. John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. Very short, concise text. And because of that, I have far less notes today in my sermon than normal, which means we may end up finishing up early, but whenever I say that, we go 20 minutes long. So we're going to go really long today, and maybe the reverse will happen. Uh, but I have divided this text into two easy sections. Let's begin, we'll just get right to work, let's begin with section one. And I'm calling this section the curiosity of the crowd, and we see this in verse nine. I'll go ahead and read it. It says, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the first thing John tells us here is that the news of Jesus' arrival in Bethany had traveled very quickly, made its way all the way to Jerusalem, which wasn't far from Bethany, only a couple of miles. But the news that he had come to Bethany or returned to Bethany after healing or raising up Lazarus from the dead it, it went out and it got to Jerusalem, and now people have found out that Jesus is back in Jerusalem, and, and not only him, but the guy who raised from the dead. Now, keep in mind, there's two months between the time that, that Jesus raised Lazarus and this moment. Right after Jesus raised Lazarus, he went into seclusion in Ephraim because the religious leaders were gunning for him. And so now the crowd or the people in Jerusalem have learned that, hey, Jesus is back in Bethany, and so is Lazarus, the guy he raised. And what do they do? They, they leave Jerusalem. This large crowd leaves Jerusalem to go see Jesus. As I said, it was only two miles away. How long does it take you to walk two miles? Fifteen minutes a mile? You're hauling if you're doing that. About 20 minutes a mile? So about 40-minute walk? Not a long walk. Um, the large crowd, what, what, what are we talking about here in this crowd? Who is in this crowd? Well... Uh, you had all sorts of people in this large crowd, but primarily Jewish pilgrims who had come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Passover celebration was the second largest feast. I think it was, in the Jewish mind, the largest, but it didn't attract more people than another feast. But this was a big one, and it would bring about a million people into the city. And so you've got pilgrims who have traveled all over Palestine and beyond to come for the Passover celebration. And so 
Many people in this large crowd consist of these pilgrims who have come, and, and they're learning. Some of them are learning about Jesus for the first time, and they're hearing about him raising somebody, and they're they're very curious, and they want to know what's going on. So you have pilgrims in this crowd. You have regular Jews who lived in the vicinity or the area in Jerusalem and surrounding communities. You certainly have some from Galilee and these other areas. So this was a a large crowd, and the text says that. It had come also to see not just Jesus, but Lazarus. The news of his rising, of his resurrection, had also traveled quickly. It was a two-for-one deal. Well, man, we just found out about this guy rising from the dead, and it was Jesus that, that raised him. That news is going around, and that's what's created all of this hoopla and excitement and curiosity. These people, people were totally and highly curious, and and. I think that we would respond in a similar way. If we had learned that somebody raised somebody from the dead, we would be curious and want to see this person who was raised. Would we not? Of course we would. And if it happened in our community, it would probably happen at the house. (laughs) At least that's the claim they would make. Um, Yeah, right? but if, if we'd heard about something like this happening in Modesto, would we not, our ears perk up and we would say, wait a minute, somebody was raised from the dead, of course. We would be very curious. And of course, with my kind of pessimistic attitude, the first thing I would say inside of my mind is, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah like somebody rose from the dead, come on. But in any case, you have that happening and you have people that have heard this rumor. And, and some of these people in this crowd were there to see him raised up. And so they're, they're spinning the same you know, story among all these people. And, and now you've got this kind of curious, frenzied group that wants to go and see this guy. They want to see the living proof. And they want to, they want to look on him with their own eyes, because that's exactly what I would want to do. You're telling me there's a person who was raised from the dead that lives over there by Naragi Lake? I, I want to go see this person myself. And, and maybe even possibly touch him, Right? And today you get sued for that. But, you know, back then it was okay. But, you know, I'd want to, like, yeah, it, okay, there's, there's really a person there. This isn't Casper. And so they want to go and look on him with their own eyes. They want to touch him with their own fingers and hands and, and, and potentially even listen to him share his experience. Maybe he'll talk about what being dead was like. You know, maybe Lazarus would say, well, I got sick. I died. I was in paradise. I came back to life, I heard Jesus calling me to come out of the cave, and I came out. I mean, what more could you say? Okay, so tell us about the paradise part. That's what people would want to hear about. What was it like for you to be in heaven? And the Apostle Paul visited the third heaven, which is the heaven that we think of that we go to in in paradise, and he wouldn't even describe what it was like. it It was a secret that he wouldn't reveal to others and so. But in any case, these people are very curious. They want to look on him, touch him, hopefully hear him tell his story. MacArthur wrote, News of the sensational miracle had spread, and the curious crowd wanted to see both the miracle worker and the one uh, whom he had raised, or the one who had raised him. So they wanted to see the guy. They wanted to see Jesus, and they wanted to see Lazarus. So that's it. They wanted to see the miracle worker, Jesus, and they wanted to see the one whom Jesus had raised. And I think that if something like that happened in this community, uh, people would uh, go bananas. They would, they would totally want to, to see him. And Now, would that guy, if this happened in our community, would the guy or gal who, 
who had been dead and raised, would they become an overnight sensation and an instant celebrity? Would they? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Man or woman of the year, Time Magazine, right? I mean, this instant stardom, right? YouTube channel, successful immediately. Millions of dollars. Of course. And why is that? Why would somebody who'd, been come, who'd come back like this, why would they be an overnight sensation and uh, instant celebrity on all of the programs, you know, and except for The View? They'd be on every show but The View because then you'd have like 10 people trying to just shoot them down. But why would that happen? It would happen because our culture, our society is obsessed with the afterlife. If you have a culture or society that's not interested in the afterlife, what happens after you die or if they're not interested in death or any of these subjects, these themes, it wouldn't gain any momentum. But we have a culture that is totally obsessed with the afterlife. How do we know this to be true? Uh, well, heaven tourism, which is what the phenomenon is called, or NDE, near-death experience, that genre, heaven tourism, near-death experience, genre of writing and, and media, it generates millions and millions of dollars here in the U.S. every year. It does. Have you ever heard of 90 Minutes in Heaven? A book written by a guy named, I think, Don Piper, who claims that he, you know, back in the 70s, I mean, you, you can't rely on anyone making a testimony about the 70s. You remember what the 70s were like? <laughs> Acid! Uh, but in any case, here's, I, maybe it happened in the 80s. Acid! I was around in the 80s. Yeah, 60s. We won't, I can't say what you did in the 60s up here. 90 Minutes in Heaven written by a guy, and, 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 and it claim, his claims are that, you know, that he went to heaven for 90 minutes and, and came back. And, and that book alone has sold 7 million copies in the United States. Uh, how many of you have heard of uh, Heaven is for Real? You know, with the little kid that apparently died and went to heaven, right? 12 million copies sold. In fact, Amazon recently identified that particular book as its 17th all-time best-selling book. And you must remember that Amazon sells more books than anyone else. Probably Barnes & Noble and every other company combined. Amazon sells more books than anyone else. That's 17th on their top seller list. That's an amazing achievement. Unbelievable. In fact, the, the 2014 movie based on that book, Heaven is for Real, it grossed $150 million globally in that year. It was a $16 million movie to make. How much money? Uh, the, the profits are just unbelievable. In fact, David Platt was right when he said, there is money to be made in peddling fiction about the afterlife as nonfiction. Big, big, big selling genre, money maker. You can make more money talking about that kind of stuff, near-death experiences, heaven tourism, and all that, than you can talking about the end times. And that's a money generator. That creates a lot of attention. Some of these churches, that's all they ever talk about is what's going to happen in the end, and it keeps a lot of people coming into their churches. But people just gobble this afterlife stuff up. They can't get enough of it. They're obsessed with it, but really and truly... These stories that are out there are nothing more than soul-damning nonsense because they promote crossless and Christless religion. In fact, one of the things that, that every one of these stories has in common is when the person dies, the first thing they see is a grandfather. 
Have you seen that in Scripture anywhere when Scripture talks about the afterlife, that you're immediately met by that old grandparent? If I don't immediately see Jesus when I die, I want a refund. I didn't even get along with Papa. You know, I don't want to see that guy again and try to get away from him. But every one of these stories has that in common. Well, I, I immediately saw my grandparents. I, I opened my eyes. I, I blacked out, and then there was this light, and I saw my grandfather there whittling away. On, this is, it's just Hollywood. The Scriptures don't say, promote anything like this. This is why these things are soul-damning uh, soul nonsense, because they, none of these uh, near-death experiences, and by the way, uh, uh, Lazarus did not have a near-death experience. He had a death experience. The man was dead, not near death. But the thing that they have in common is that none of these things align with Scripture, with what Scripture clearly teaches about afterlife. And that's how we know they're fictitious and they're about money. Now, can they be heartwarming? Yes. Can they be encouraging? Yes. But your Scripture should take care of that for you. You don't need to watch a, a dumb movie that's filled with lies and deception. The Bible accurately describes heaven and hell and what we must do to experience eternal life, repent, and receive Jesus Christ by grace through faith. But the fact is, people are not interested in the Bible. They are interested in ear-tickling fiction. That's what our culture wants. Give me more fiction. What is Joel Osteen? Fiction. Give me more religious fiction. That's what people want. And so I know that if something like that occurred in this town, or allegedly occurred, because that's how it would go down, it would, it would stir up folks. People would, line, people would go to that site, that address where that person lives. They would line up like they did at the first Krispy Kreme when it opened. <laughs> it was stupid. No donuts worth this. They would line up like graffiti night. They would line up like they do at Indiana Jones Ride in Disneyland in caves. Bad idea to have that many people eating burritos in caves. Bad. <laughs> people would just, I mean, they would just flock to that address. There would be so much media coverage. It would just be crazy. That person would be an immediate celebrity. And in, in a, you know, I'm using some hyperbole here, but in many ways, that's what you have playing out here. Now, people today are very superstitious, but people in first century Israel were very superstitious as well. Don't, oh, that's a grave. Don't step over a grave. You know, they had a lot of crazy beliefs and things that they, you know, that they believed and adhered to. And so they want to see this guy. This guy was dead for four days. He stinketh. Whoa, I got to go see this guy. It had just traveled quickly, and, and Lazarus becomes an overnight sensation, instant celebrity, and this very large, curious crowd leaves Jerusalem to come to Bethany to see him. And I'll tell you what, the size of the crowd, I mean, I know it's described as large, but it must have been like really, really, really large or very large because the first thing that happens is the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment, right? That's like the whole body of 71 elders and all that. They're the Supreme Court. They're all religious leaders, various types. They're watching everything. They're kind of governing and on high alert because Passover's there. The first thing they notice is a vacuum occur, occur at the temple. Like, all of a sudden, droves of people just leave. And they're like, dude, they just left our church. What is going on here? 
And so this crowd must have been really large because the Sanhedrin immediately took notice. They realized a lot of people had just left the city. And that's how we know it was really big. And you know some of these guys were saying, what just happened? Why did everyone leave? Where did our congregation go? We've got the Passover here. And now we move to section 2. And this section I've entitled, The Concern of the Chief Priests. Verses 10 and 11, our last two verses. The text says, So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Wow. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. As a living testimony, which is, by the way, the title of this sermon, Lazarus posed a major threat to the chief priests. And this is why they planned to assassinate or planned to kill him. This guy... Now, Jesus had been a threat to them for a long time, and they had, you know, put out a death warrant for him. But now Lazarus is in their crosshairs, and he is a, a terrible threat to this re religious establishment. Now, do you remember what the high priest Caiaphas said back in chapter 11, verse 50, when he hatched his murderous plan to kill Jesus? He told his comrades, right, the rest of the Sanhedrin, it would be better that one man die for the nation rather than the whole nation. Remember that text? So the original plan was to kill one man, Jesus. Get rid of him, the problem's gone. But here we see them conspiring to kill a second man, Lazarus. This is how evil multiplies. One wicked act, or one wicked plan in this case, leads to another wicked act or wicked plan. One sin leads to another sin. And then that sin leads to a series of sins. You think in terms of the sin of lying. One, you perpetuate one lie, and, you, and then you don't, you don't retell that lie well enough when called out on it, so you have to make up another lie to cover that lie. And then the next thing you know, you've got ten, one lie becomes ten lies. This is just how wickedness and evil multiplies. They began with setting their sights on Jesus as their target, and that's not enough now. Now we have this guy who's a living testimony to being raised by Jesus, and we've got to kill him too. And, and you can just look at the ripple effect from this point out with all of the believers and Christians throughout all of history who have been martyred for being a living testimony. It would, it would have never been enough just to kill Jesus. You'd have to wipe out God himself is what they thought they actually did. Evil just multiplies evil. Sin creates and leads to more sin in a series of sins. And we see that playing out in the text here. Jesus wasn't enough. Now we've got to kill this guy. So they're just writing death warrants and like, okay, let's, let's take him out too. How prideful. That just struck me when I was thinking about these guys. How prideful and utterly ignorant were these chief priests for thinking they could kill a man whom Jesus just raised from the dead. <laughs> it's just funny. We'll just take him out. Uh, like, like you don't understand who you're dealing with, that, that you could kill him. Like, like if they had guns back then, somebody pops a cap in him, lays him out, dirty, hairy, and Jesus is in the back and goes, oh, and he comes right back up. 
Give me the magnum. Oh, Jesus, we could be stuck in an eternal cycle of raising Lazarus from the dead. Literally. Like, why didn't they, you weren't able to put this together? They didn't think that if we kill Lazarus that Jesus could easily bring him back to life again and again and again and again, right? Nobody's really thinking here, right? And this could have been the case. They didn't understand that if they killed Lazarus, Jesus could further humiliate them by easily undoing their wicked deed and by raising him a second time and a third time and a fourth time and a fifth time until there were no more bullets in the world. They didn't have bullets back then, but still. It's just crazy. This, this is a, I would call it a classic case of man thinking he is mightier than God. Man has been thinking about this since the fall. Well, I'll show God. I'll tell him. I'll put him in his place. You know? This is how the enemies of God align themselves, array themselves against God. They think they're mightier than God, that they can take God out, or that they can undo his will and plans, that they can, if they destroy one of his people, then, then Christianity will go away. This is what they're thinking here. And it's just never been the case. In fact, I was reading, I think, in Psalm 37, where it says, God laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. <laughs> just funny. Oh, we'll just keep killing him. And Jesus, well, I'll just keep raising him. I'll raise you too, you know? It's like they're playing poker with Lazarus. John Calvin wrote, this is a great comment by this guy. He says, it certainly was worse than insane fury to endeavor to put to death one who had manifestly been raised from the dead by divine power. <laughs> Crazy. Like, like man's power to kill in man's mind is greater than God's power to raise or redeem. The immediate threat Lazarus posed to the chief priests, to the religious establishment, was that Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Do you see that in verse 11? That's the only threat that, that John lists here. There were more, and I'll describe them, but that's the immediate threat. That's, that's what's playing out here. You've got this guy who's been raised, and people are seeing him, and they're believing in Jesus. And so what, what does that mean? It means that, wait a minute, he's pulling people out of our congregation to follow Jesus. We can't have that. Then we lose the money. We lose the power. We lose the prestige. Now, interpretations vary on the meaning of the phrase going away. Do you see it there? I don't know how it's listed in your Bible. I believe in the ESV it says going away. So there's different opinions on what going away means. Pierce says it means they, and he's speaking of the Jews, he says they withdrew themselves from the service of the synagogue. So there's one view. Bloomfield says it means they ceased to pay regard to the teaching of the scribes which they had formerly done. There's another idea there. J.C. Ryle, whom I really respect, says it simply means they were going away from Jerusalem to go to Bethany. So his doesn't have, any, doesn't have anything to do with them leaving the religion of Judaism or anything like that or the service of the synagogue or the teachings of the scribes. His just means going away means they were leaving, they were leaving the celebration or the pre-celebration to go see Jesus and Lazarus in Bethany. I, I don't know if that's accurate. 
The next phrase, believing in Jesus, seems to denote authentic belief because it is linked to chapter 11, verse 45, where we see Jews authentically believing in Jesus right after he raises Lazarus from the dead. These two texts here are, are piggybacked or chain-linked. So the idea there is that you have, uh, you have real belief represented or authentic faith represented in 1145, and you have the same thing playing out here. Authentic belief will cause the one who possesses it to begin to separate themselves or go away from false religion and false teachers to follow Jesus and join a local church. Right? It's like one of the first things that happens. If you're mixed up in some cult and you didn't know that, you thought it was a real thing, and then you actually get saved and you have the Holy Spirit, you'll begin to look at the Word of God and you'll begin to, you're sniff, you know, things won't, in that context, in the Jehovah Witness Hall or whatever, it won't line up with Scripture and it won't pass the sniff test. And you'll start to say, somebody's wrong here. I, I can't imagine it's the Bible. And, and you have the spirit in you that is confirming the truth and confirming error. And at some point, you divorce yourself from Jehovah Witnessism or whatever it is. And I was saved in a legitimate, sound church. And so I didn't have to leave behind a religion. But I tell you what I did leave behind. About 90, or I think it was probably more like 300 DVDs that I didn't feel like belonged in my house. Pulp fiction in these movies. I was immediately convicted on sin in my own life, and I saw all these things that promoted sin, and I didn't want to have anything to do with them. Same effect with a false religion. When you first get saved, your attitude and behavior towards certain things and false teachings and sin is going to change. You're going to become, start to become a different person. That's what happens. So authentic belief will cause the one who possesses it to begin to separate themselves from whatever that religion is, whatever those teachings are, whoever those leaders are. And what happens when you begin to isolate or separate yourself from that? Let's say that you have been part of Mormonism your whole life, and then all of a sudden you say, wow, something's wrong here, it, it smells fishy. Uh, wait a minute, they deny the deity of Jesus and these things that are clear in Scripture. I'm out of here. What happens when you leave? There is immediate pushback, isn't there? People start contacting you saying, why haven't you, why haven't you been at worship? And this happens in some Roman Catholic circles that have gone so astray, you can't even find Jesus in there, but Mary's all over the place. In fact, R.C. Sproul one time said, somebody asked him the question, said, well, there's real Christians in Roman Catholicism, right? He said, possibly. He says, but I don't know how they could be. If they become actually saved in it, they'll end up leaving the religion because there's so much fallacy. This is reality. You don't stay Roman Catholic the rest of your life if they're promoting Mary. If you do, something's wrong with you because the only person they should be promoting is Jesus. And they shouldn't be promoting Simon, Peter, or anyone else. But there will be a disconnect that will begin to happen. You get saved for real and all of a sudden, you don't like error, error, and you don't like fallacy, and you start to see it in a way that you never have. And you divorce yourself from it, and then what happens? You get pushback from friends. You get pushback from family members, right, that are still in that false religion or whatever it is. And in some cases, you get more than pushback. You get persecution. They'll start saying things to you like, well, you're, well, you're going to Redemption Hill Church. They preach the doctrines of demons over there. You better get out of there and come back to Roman Catholicism. 
you can't be saved if you're not a part of Roman Catholicism. Look at what it says in our decrees. Yeah, but what does it say in the Bible? We don't care about that. Look at what it says in our decrees. You will be persecuted so often for divorcing yourself from the fallacies. In this scenario, you've got, in, in our text, you've got authentic belief and pushback. And it's murderous pushback, right, from the religious leaders. They want to kill Lazarus, which tells me that Pierce and Bloomfield are correct in their interpretations of the phrase going away. It's not about leaving Jerusalem. It's about going away from religion as they knew it. Why else would the religious establishment get upset? They're not upset when people who don't belong. to They, they get upset when people leave their religion for another religion. That's what stokes the flames of their wrath. That's what's playing out here. These Jews, who, who uh, Lazarus, whom they, they were seeing Lazarus as a living testimony, they were going away from the service of the synagogue, they were going away from the teachings of the scribes, those are part of the religious establishment, because they now believed in Jesus and were seeking to follow Jesus. Now, who did the religious leaders blame for this luring away of their disciples, of their sheep? Who did they blame for, for shrinking the size of their congregation? Lazarus. That's who they blamed. Oh, on account of him, uh, it says in the text, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. That is one threat that Lazarus posed. He is leading the religious establishment's congregation, people in the congregation, away from them, which removes their financial base, their influence, their power, their prestige. It ticks them off. Boy, if we keep losing people, we won't be able to do ministry the way we're doing it. And then what? We'll be unemployed. We can't have that. Somebody get a, a hit put together for Lazarus. We'll kill Jesus. We'll kill Lazarus. And then our jobs won't be on the line. That's the rationale. That's the thinking. And this is what causes churches to, to come at other churches when one church is growing in, in its congregational size and another one is shrinking, especially if people are leaving this one to go over here. The guys over here get ticked. They get upset. They get concerned. We've just been small since the beginning and most people stick here, so praise the Lord. I don't have to play that game in my psyche, but I could. Don't make me do it. Um, <laughs> please, Lord, please. So in this scenario, you've got authentic belief, you've got pushback, it's murderous pushback. I think Pierce and Bloomfield are right. The, 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 the synagogues and, and what's happening with these religious leaders is shrinking to a degree, and they don't like it at all. Lazarus posed a threat to the chief priests in another way, and I think this is where it gets just more, <laughs> more dynamic, but he was a living proof that testified to Jesus' messiahship. He was a living proof that testified to Jesus' Messiahship. Scripture clearly shows that Messiah will resurrect believers and unbelievers in the future. You know, we see that in Isaiah 26, 19. We actually studied that when we were in Daniel a while ago, uh, Daniel 12, 2. We see it in John chapter 5, 28 and 29. So the Scripture shows and teaches that when Messiah comes, and part of his ministry and work will be to raise people from the dead. And so there's a tie there between Messiah and resurrection. 
And Lazarus' return from the dead proved what? That Jesus is indeed the Messiah who will perform this future resurrection. And the, the idea is that raising Lazarus testifies to the future truth of what I will do in the future for the dead and the living, right? For those who don't believe, they'll be raised too. And for those who do believe, they'll be raised. Jesus is going to raise everyone. And when he raised Lazarus, it shouted, I'm the Messiah who will raise people. And these religious leaders realized that. Now, again, they're not believing in Jesus as Messiah. They're not willing to receive him as such, but they see the connections and it terrifies them. Every miracle Jesus performed testified to his Messiahship. You know, there's, there's great debate on why Jesus healed these people or that person or the lepers or whatever, and, and they always tie it to his compassion and his love. And yeah, of course you can, but that's not the only reason Jesus did what he did to prove who he is, to authenticate his message. Just as we authenticate our message that we are Christians, we, authentic, we, we preach our message that we are, you know, we testify and preach our message that we are Christians, we, we prove that we are through good deeds. Jesus preached that he is Messiah, proved that he is through miracles, through supernatural events, through things that only God could do. Every miracle Jesus performed testified to his Messiahship, but four specific miracles tie him directly to the resurrection. I think all the miracles tie him to the resurrection in some sense, but in a general way, right, a more generic way. But he did four miracles, at least that I can see, maybe more, but there are four that specifically, specifically tie him to Messiah as the resurrector. The raising of the widow of Nain's son, Luke 7, 11 through 17. He raised somebody from the dead. Whenever he raises somebody from the dead, he's saying, I am Messiah and I will perform the future resurrection. How about the raising of Jairus' daughter, Luke 8, 52. Another person dead and raised from the dead, right? Again, authenticates Messiahship clearly proclaims that he will perform a future resurrection. How about the raising of Lazarus? There's three people that he raised from the dead. These people weren't sleeping. They weren't in comas. They were all dead, especially Lazarus because he was in the tomb four days and he stinketh. John 11, 43 through 44. And that's not, those aren't the only three that he raised from the dead. He also raised himself. How could he raise himself? Well, he did. I don't know how that works. John 2.19, 10.18, and Acts 17.31. You know, in, in the passage in John, Jesus says, I lay down my life, I'll take it up again. Bottom line, we know that God raised Christ, but Christ himself took credit for his own rising. Again, every time he raises somebody from the dead, those three instances, and himself, he is saying two things, I am the Messiah, and I am the resurrection, and I will raise people. Those four things tie him directly to resurrection. When people saw Lazarus alive, they received it as a clear sign of Jesus' messiahship and, and the fact that he will perform the future resurrection of themselves. And they believed in him, right? John eleven forty five, 45, right? We already looked at that in chapter 12, verse 11. We're looking at that now. Every time when he raised somebody, especially Lazarus, they said, man, he is the messiah because the messiah is the one who resurrects. Now, the chief priests did not deny the evidence, Lazarus. They didn't deny the evidence because Lazarus was alive. How do you deny the fact that somebody's alive going around talking and doing his grocery shopping and riding a camel to work, whatever he was doing? 
They didn't deny his existence. How can you deny the existence of a person? You've got to be a special kind of stupid. Somebody in the audience might be saying, I don't think Phil's really up there speaking. Stupid. I'm up here talking right now. You can see me. Do you want to touch me? That's weird, but still. Yeah, no. You, you don't deny the reality of, of a being that's there, a person. So the, the, the chief priest, the religious establishment, did not deny the evidence. They simply refused to believe it and sought to eliminate it. They, 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 they knew it was there, but they weren't willing to tie it to Jesus' Messiahship as the resurrector and believe. That's the issue. And what did they do? Not only that, was there a refusal and rejection, but there was a plan being hatched in this text to eliminate the evidence. We must kill Lazarus and get rid of him, right? As a quick side note, some folks reject the legitimacy of these conversions, right? These new believers in John 11 and 12. They, they do reject it. They, they reject the conversions that took place here. They say this was superficial faith as in the end of John chapter 2 and these things. They say this wasn't real faith because many of these people turned against Jesus during his Passion Week and, you know, they were shouting Hosanna on like Monday or Sunday and then on Friday, you know, crucify him, crucify him. Well, that, I don't think that's true of these particular people. This was not the entire crowd. This was some Jews within the crowd. But people say, no, these aren't real conversions in 11 and 12. In fact, J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite commentators, doesn't think they were legit. The rationale people give for rejecting these people as true believers is because they think there were only 120 believers in the world prior to Pentecost. But that's not at all what the book of Acts teaches. It teaches that there was 120 in the upper room. It doesn't say there was 120 in the world. So, hello? There were more believers in the world, in that community. There were just 120 who met in the upper room. There were many others throughout the area. Between his resurrection and ascension, like that period of time, Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 1 Corinthians 15, 6. How do we deal with that? They're literally called brothers. Well, they're not Jewish brothers. They're believer brothers. There were many, many more Christians throughout the area than 120. So if that's what you thought, sorry, it's not true. There were more believers than that. Which means what? That in 11 and 12 of John, these very likely are believers. Now, were, were there thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians when, when Jesus died, you know, before Pentecost and all that? Or No, I don't think there were thousands and thousands, but there was more than 120. Lastly, Lazarus and this is another way he posed a threat. Lazarus was an inconvenient truth. It wasn't global warming. <laughs> Sorry, Al. Lazarus was an inconvenient truth, and he was actually an embarrassment to the chief priests. Can anyone think of the reason why he would be an inconvenient truth? His life, living life, being a living person who was restored from death. Can anyone think of why that would be an inconvenient truth, an embarrassment to them? I'll tell you why. Sadducees denied all things supernatural, especially resurrection. Who were the chief priests? Sadducees. <laughs> Lazarus' return from the dead totally contradicted their theology of no resurrection. <laughs> Just blatant slapdown of that, that terrible doctrine they promoted. 
A.W. Pink wrote, He was a striking witness against them, denying as they did the truth of resurrection. And I had my wife read this section the other day just to see if it was clear, and she, I heard her snickering, but it is kind of funny. But think about this. The worst possible scenario for a Sadducee would be to have a miracle worker in the community raising folks from the dead and have them tell their stories to large crowds. You don't believe in the resurrection, and yet you have someone who's raised people from the dead in your community, and those people are testifying to their experience? That's bad for you. That's just blatant. That's, a, that's the worst possible scenario. It makes you uh, either that's all fiction, and those people really weren't raised, which is kind of the yarn they were trying to spin, or you're wrong in your theology. And the truth of the matter is they were wrong in their theology. And we see the pushback, right? They wanted to eliminate Lazarus because they thought doing so would eliminate the contradiction and bring an end to their public embarrassment. We'll just get rid of the, the living proof. We get rid of the resurrected, risen one, Lazarus, and then the problem's gone. Well, you know, you're going to have a problem with Jesus in about a week because he's coming back too. And a whole bunch of people rose out of the tombs and burst forth out of the tombs when Jesus died on the cross. Did you know that? Others were resurrected at that time. They got big problems here. They're not going to be able to stamp it out. And the fact of the matter is, and this is what's so terrifying about what they're doing, and it has implications for us. These chief priests would rather commit murder than acknowledge they are wrong. It's horrible. I, I, I think I was talking to you, Daryl, or somebody the other day when we were walking in the morning, and I think maybe you made a comment that, but isn't that pretty much the reason why all murders exist? To cover something up or to avoid the truth and reality? Yeah, somebody goes into a bank or into a, a you know, quick mart or whatever and robs the place and they kill the clerk because they don't want the clerk to testify about them later because they made eye contact or looked at each other. But that's not the point. The point is, is that they were willing to go as far as murdering somebody. They would rather kill somebody than acknowledge or admit that they were wrong. You know that's built into our damnic nature as sinners? that we really, in our heart of hearts, don't want to acknowledge the fact that we're wrong about things or submit to Christ in that way. This is why sinners go to hell. They won't admit that they're sinners. They would rather kill people for calling them that or persecute others for calling them that than deal with their own sin and be real with themselves. Transparency is not a popular thing. Obama ran on that. Remember that? That was the least transparent administration in history. <laughs> we're going to be fully open. I've never seen a more secretive administration. So one thing about Trump, he tweets everything. I wish he'd stop. <laughs> you know everything about that guy. It's terrible. Please, please keep it under wraps. But in any case, people do not want to own their junk. They don't. And people, some people are willing to go as far as killing people to stifle and silence them. Why do you think that the world hated and murdered and, mar and killed Jesus? Why do you think it killed Jesus? Because it's filled with sinners who don't want to acknowledge they're sinners. <laughs> and many of these sinners were religious. In fact, some of the greatest sinners of all time are religious. 
It's a terrible, terrible situation. In fact, you can't, you can't even be, you can't even receive the grace of God, the mercy of God until you start getting real with yourself. Until you start acknowledging your own sin and then begin to confess that to the Lord. His grace is there, His mercy is there, it's ready. But man, unless, <laughs> unless you own... This is why the, the first beatitude opens with, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Do you know what it means to be poor in spirit? It means to be spiritually bankrupt. To realize that you're a sinner. To realize that you deserve hell. To realize that you're an enemy of God. It's those who make that realization through that working of the Holy Spirit, those are the ones in the world who are blessed. Because the next step is the saving grace of God. The rescue of Jesus Christ. And some people will do anything to keep from acknowledging and owning their own stuff. And we kind of do that in our own ways. Maybe we've already confessed our sin and we believe in Jesus and we're saved. But, but do we own the little things that we do around the house and stuff? Are we stubborn? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bad situation, man. We may not, we should not be this way. We absolutely should not. And, and, and precisely what's playing out in the text, this just great example of this man's belligerence and desire to hang on to the power, hang on to the sin, keep those things secret. It's just better to kill than to deal with myself. That's, that's the highest level, I think. And that's precisely what the Lord Jesus suffered. They didn't kill him because he was a good person. They killed him because he was a threat. He said back in John, in one of the passages we were looking at, maybe chapter 6, the world hates me. Why does it hate me? The world hates me because I expose its sin and wickedness. This is why they killed Jesus. This is why we killed Jesus. That's why. We see it in the text. It's very tragic, but it's reality. I'm going to begin to wrap up. Tie this to ourselves and maybe bring an application out of it. We originally began by talking about how Martha and Mary served Jesus during this party that was playing out in Bethany prior to his triumphal entry. How did Martha serve Jesus during the party? Well, we said earlier at the beginning of the sermon, she served him by preparing and serving the meal. How did Mary serve Jesus during the party? She lovingly Sacrificed to him when she anointed him with expensive perfume, washed his feet, dried her feet, or dried his feet with her hair instead of a towel. This is extraordinary. If you didn't weren't here last week, you should go back and listen to that message. Although the volume level's a little high, I sound like I'm yelling the entire time, um, and I usually am. So when it's amplified, it's way worse. But if you can endure it, and now we were going to ask that we asked the question at the beginning, and we're going to answer it now. How did Lazarus serve Jesus during the party? Well, he stood before a great crowd as a living testimony to Jesus' Messiahship and resurrecting power. This is how he served during this time and after this time. And it says in the text, on account of him, what? Many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Wow. Now, Scripture, I don't know if you've noticed, but Scripture doesn't say a whole lot about Lazarus. It doesn't. It doesn't promote him or describe him as a pastor. It doesn't describe him as a preacher. It doesn't describe him as an evangelist or, or really anything other than the brother of Martha and Mary and friend of Jesus and the guy whom, who had died whom Jesus raised. I mean, that's, 
literally all the Bible says about this man. There's just not much in there. And the reason why is because he's not the point. Jesus is the point. But in any case, not much is said about him. And we actually have to assume that he shared his personal testimony with those who came to Bethany because Scripture does not specify what he did. We know that he was before the crowd. We know that people were looking at him and, you know, and, and, and bearing witness to his presence and these things. We know he was reclining at the dinner table, but none of his words are recorded. We don't even know. We don't know if, if he was talking to people and describing his experience. We have no idea. If I tell you he did that, it's conjecture because the scripture doesn't say. We don't know if he actually said anything at all. Maybe he did. I would think that he would have talked about his experience to a degree, but I'll tell you this, I do not believe that his personal testimony, if he shared it at all, played a role in this scenario at all. I don't think that him speaking and sharing what happened to him, it played a part in this, or the people going away from the synagogue of religious leaders. I don't think it had anything to do with it. I think if it did, it would be mentioned in the text, but there's nothing like that. But something about him was used in this scenario, and that was his life. It wasn't necessarily his words, it was his life. All he had to do was be present, and people would marvel and begin to whisper, that man was dead and buried four days. Look at him there, alive. Only the Messiah could perform a miracle like this, and since Jesus raised him, he must be the Messiah. I'm following Jesus for now on. I think that's what was playing out here. Lazarus didn't have to stand up and take a microphone and preach a message. He's not known as a preacher. All he had to do was sit at the table alive, and people would look at him and say, well, there's the evidence. I'm going to go talk to him. Why? He's physically right there. That's all the evidence I need. It was his living his life that was used in this scenario. And in a very similar way, believers are to be living testimonies to Jesus. Our lives should be so different from those around us that people become curious and begin to ask questions. Well, uh, you're not like the other employees at this place. They're always cussing and complaining and whining about their pay and all these things, and they're always dating everyone in here. It's like the love connection here. It's not Home Depot. <laughs> but you're not like them. What's wrong with you? Why are you different? You know, we've been trying to get you, Fred, to go with us to the, to the nudie bar every Tuesday night after work, but you have refused consistently to go with us. Why is that? Why don't you cuss like a sailor? And, and it's, 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 I'm so saddened by the use of profanity today, how widespread it is. You know, I have a DJ company, and I work at schools all the time, and I work at Somerset all the time, and these kids, it's unbelievable what comes out of their mouths. It's unreal. Was it like that when I was that old? I don't remember, probably. But you're living in such a way that your life is lived out in such a way that it causes curiosity among people. And they begin to ask questions. Well, maybe he's one of them holy rollers. That's never a compliment. 
<laughs> You're not like the other employees or what have you. And when they, they ask, you know, when they're curious and they ask why we're different, and they will if you're living differently, we are to testify that it is because of Jesus that we are different. See, Lazarus probably didn't have to say a word. I mean, he was dead and living. and We were dead and living, but not physically. We were spiritually dead. There's a difference. But people are going to be curious, and they're going to ask us questions. And what's going on with you? Why are you different? Or if you're just having regular conversation with people or whatever, you just get an opportunity to share. But we just, we just tell them why we're different. We don't say it's because uh, I chose Jesus. We don't say it's because I'm a good person or because I'm highly religious. We say, uh, let me tell you, man, uh, I, I'm, I'm becoming a different person because of Jesus, because of His Messiahship, because of His resurrecting power in my life. And we can describe how He has raised us to spiritual life through the Holy Spirit and how His power is transforming our daily lives. You know what people think when they see us living differently? They think that we're, we're performing an act. They do. They think that, you know, like, you're just putting on a show. Obviously, you don't know how poor of an actor or performer I am. I'm not putting on a show. <laughs> Trust me. But they think that we're just, you know, we're just religious and we're just kind of faking it, or it's because we think we're better than people. We're better than others, and that's why we don't use the profanity and all that. I don't think I'm better than anyone else. Do you? They don't, it just mystifies them. They can't get their mind around what's going on with us. And we say it's because of Jesus. It's because of what He's doing in our lives. Does our lifestyle testify to Jesus' Messiahship and resurrecting power? It's a great question to ask yourself. Is the way I live my life, does it shout, Jesus is my Savior, my Messiah, and I have His resurrecting power through the Holy Spirit in my life? Does the way you live your life shout that? Does our behavior, day-to-day -day behavior, affirm that we have been raised spiritually and made alive by Jesus? How do we serve Jesus each day? Remember, this is a party that's playing out, and you've got multiple people serving the Lord. How do we serve Him, not at dinner parties, or maybe at dinner parties, but how do we serve Him on a day-to-day -day basis? Do we come before men, and like Lazarus, and let them see our godly conduct and and good deeds that they might glorify our Father who is in heaven? Matthew 5.16. Do we point them to Jesus? He's the reason. He's the reason. He's not just the reason for the season, Fox News. He's the reason why I'm different. It's not because of me. Because if we take Him out of the, out of the equation, out of the mix, I am dirt. Is this what we tell people? I am what I am because of Christ. We should be like John Newton who said, I'm not yet what I want to be, what I desire to be, the end goal, but I'm not who I was. I'm not yet there, but I'm not who I was. And do we point them to Jesus and, and give Him the glory and credit, regardless of how they're going to respond or what they're going to think, oh, I knew it. I just thought it was a 12-step program. 
and on account of us <laughs> are many going away and believing in Jesus. How does the world around us respond to us? You know, living as a testimony to Jesus' messiahship and resurrecting power in this fallen world can and will bring persecution. The world hates those who live as a testimony to Jesus. Why? Because it hates Jesus. Why does it hate Jesus? Because he exposes the world's sin, calls them to repentance. It's not something they want to do. Jesus told his disciples during his high priestly prayer, he said, you know, the world is going to hate you guys, but keep in mind that it hated me first. John 15, 18. Spurgeon wrote, When men hate Christ, they also hate those whom he has blessed and will go to any lengths in seeking to silence their testimony. Isn't that what we see in this text? Even if Lazarus never spoke a word, he was a living testimony. His life proved who Jesus is. They wanted to snuff him out. Do you know what Lazarus's crowning achievement was? It wasn't the party he threw for Jesus, although I've been to a few really good planned parties, and that could be a crowning achievement. Eh, maybe not. But a good party's a good party. I'm not talking about the ones in high school. Those were pathetic. His crowning achievement wasn't the party he threw for Jesus. It wasn't the influence he may have had with the large crowd. It was the death warrant the Sanhedrin issued against him. That was his crowning achievement. To be counted worthy to suffer at the hands of sinful men for the name of Jesus is a high blessing from God. Acts 5.41 Persecution is not a bummer. It's a badge of honor. Matthew 5.11 Blessed are you when you are persecuted for me. Now the key to maintaining a proper perspective and godly attitude in times of trouble, affliction, and persecution is regular reflection on 2 Corinthians 4.17. We would all admit that there are times where we are severely afflicted or persecuted or whatever. And we would all be willing to admit, hopefully transparent enough, to say that we don't do too well during those seasons and times. It's very hard for us to maintain the right perspective and a godly attitude and to keep our behavior aligned with God's will, right? It's tough. You know, Tom was telling me he's been sick all week with a stomach flu and stuff, and it's making him mad. We don't, guys, we don't do well sick. All the wives are like, that's the most intelligent thing he said the whole sermon. <laughs> he's like this big burly man, but as soon as he gets sick, he's sucking his thumb on the couch. Mommy. Turn into, we turn into big old babies. Big old baby Huey. Tom's like, I'm going to kill him after the sermon. I'm small, don't. We don't always do so well during affliction, times of affliction or difficult seasons. Whatever it is, take it and parallel it to your life. But I'm, I'm speaking primarily of persecution, which is kind of rare in this nation of ours, although you'll receive certain types of it. But 
to keep the right perspective and godly attitude in those times, you must, you must go back to 2 Corinthians 4.17 over and over and over and over. Keep meditating on it. Keep reflecting on it. Our present troubles, afflictions, and persecutions are preparing us for something greater. What is it according to that verse? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now listen to this great quote from R. Kent Hughes. I'm finishing. He said, Even though we do not possess the faintest trace of genius and perhaps have little we can bring to Christ, yet if we were dead in our sins, and if over us a voice has cried, Come forth, and if we have risen to newness of life, and the Master has said, Unbind him and let him go, so that we are now free, then we have become unanswerable arguments for Jesus Christ. Every believer's life has been so changed that the only way it can be accounted for is the power of Christ. If we have new life and are fellowshipping with Christ, as was Lazarus, we are great arguments for the gospel, unanswerable proofs of the reality and power of Jesus Christ. And yet, maybe you have more in common with the chief priests than you do with Lazarus. Maybe the example of Lazarus doesn't at all resonate with you, but the chief priests do. And at the bottom of it, if you were to just melt it all down, what would be left is just the simple fact that you refuse to believe in Jesus that you refuse to accept him, that you refuse to receive him as Lord and Savior and to surrender your life, submit your life to him. Because that's really all the chief priests were doing. Maybe you've even persecuted God's people in the past. Maybe you you're an unbeliever now and you're married to a Christian wife or husband who recently got saved and you've been giving them a lot of crap because you don't like what they're doing now. Giving them grief. Well, that was my issue when my wife got saved. I didn't get saved till two years after her. Thank God. I don't think God saved me for me. I think he saved me to relieve my wife. I'm a terrorist. And here's what I would say to you. I'd just simply ask that you re-examine the biblical evidence in this text as well as the physical evidence in this room. Take a look around you. Every believer here today is physical evidence the Messiahship and resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. Just as Lazarus was. And you can deny the evidence, but that doesn't change the Word of God. And it certainly doesn't impact or change what God has done and is currently doing in our lives. Your denial doesn't stop Him from doing what He's going to do. You are not mightier than God. You think you are, but you aren't. The evidence is clear. It's clear in Scripture, and it's clear in this room. Will you believe it? 
If you continue to reject the evidence, it will be used as a testimony against you in heaven's courtroom on judgment day. Don't let this happen. Believe the evidence by repenting and believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You think you're too sinful for Him to fix you? You don't understand. You've got it backwards. It's your sin that qualifies you for salvation. (laughs) You don't have to clean yourself up. There's nothing that you've done that could keep God from redeeming and saving you. God can save me. He can save you. If he could save Saul of Tarsus, he could save you. If he could raise Lazarus from dead four days, he can raise you spiritually. It's easy for him. Believe that Jesus lived for your righteousness, died for your sins, was buried to settle your account, and rose from the grave three days later, victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for you. If you do this, you will be saved, and you will become a living testimony to the Messiahship and resurrecting power of Jesus Christ. You will find that you will be living your life like Lazarus. People will be curious and they'll ask, and you can tell them why. And you can give all the glory to Christ. Amen? Amen.